you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 1. Smartphone or tablet, use your favorite app, go for it. We're going to begin a series uh, today on this book of Jonah, and I want to state the goal right at the top. Um, The goal of our study in Jonah is going to be to expose and expel the religious person that resides within every one of us. To expose and expel the religious person that resides within each one of us. Uh, Jonah is famous for being swallowed by a fish. We all know that, but um, the fish is actually pretty incidental to the story. Jonah is a biographical account of a man who is deeply religious, but has an incredibly faulty view of God. And this faulty view of God leads to some pretty destructive attitudes and behaviors. And it leads to a man who is deeply out of touch with the mission of God in the world. The book of Jonah was really, um, it's a great book for people in the church to study because to be brutally honest, there are religious people like Jonah in every church in America today. And as we'll see, the, the author of this book is trying to get something done. He's trying to accomplish something. He's trying to expose and expel the religious person that resides within each one of us. So we're going to use the next few weeks here to ditch religion. I want to read Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read the first 16 verses. The word of the Lord came, came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. 
In our teaching time today, we're going to consider the following. We're going to look at who religious people avoid, what religious people are indifferent to, how religious people are formed, and how religious people can be transformed. Who religious people avoid, what religious people are indifferent to, how religious people are formed, and how religious people can be transformed. First, who religious people avoid? Uh, most stories have a protagonist and an antagonist. That's typical in a plotline of a, of a story. That's true of this book in Jonah. In the book of Jonah, God is the protagonist, the good guy. Jonah is actually the antagonist, the bad guy. Jonah is a religious person. We read in 2 Kings 14 that he's a prophet in Israel during the time of Jeroboam II. So he's Israel's pastor. He's Israel's spiritual counselor. During the time of the reign of Jeroboam II, we're told in that passage that Jeroboam II did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So this was a kind of dark time spiritually for the nation of Israel. It was dark not just because of their spiritual rebellion during this time, but it was dark because they had had a run-in, a conflict with a neighboring empire called Assyria. And through that conflict, Assyria had weakened Israel's borders. So while Jonah and all of Israel were kind of in bad shape spiritually during this time, God still had compassion on the people of Israel and used Jonah's ministry, his preaching ministry, to help rebuild those borders that had become weakened with this conflict with Assyria. Now, Assyria at the time was the bully on the block. Uh, they, uh, had paid, they had forced Israel to pay a hefty tribute tax, and really Assyria was the one that was manipulating and controlling all of Israel. And this is the Assyria, the Nineveh, uh, Nineveh's capital city of Assyria. That's the Assyria God calls Jonah to go preach against. Now, at the mention of the name Assyria, at the mention of the name Nineveh, no Israelite would have had a neutral emotional reaction to hearing that name. Uh, the mention of Nineveh, the mention of Assyria would have been an ominous memory in the collective conscience of Israel. One Jewish commentator vividly captures the sentiment many in Israel would have had towards Assyria. He writes, the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless, power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. For Jonah, Nineveh was no ordinary city. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. That's the city, that's the nation God calls Jonah to go to and to preach against. Now, the way in which the narrative is written makes something unmistakably clear. Jonah didn't hesitate one bit. As soon as God finished speaking, he got up and went 180 degrees in the opposite direction without hesitation. He didn't deliberate over it. He didn't seek counsel from friends about it. He didn't pray about it. He got up and went 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Now, Jonah's actions are unprecedented. Think about it. Israel's prophet. He's Israel's pastor. He's Israel's spiritual counselor. And in a command, a clear command from God, he gets up and goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Why? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. If you're reading this purely for the sake of the story, you're asking that question, why? Part of the brilliance of the way in which the book is written is that it leaves you hanging with that until chapter 4. That, that question is not answered until chapter 4. Why is Jonah running? Why is he going in the opposite direction? Why is he defying God? We don't know until chapter 4. 
So you'll have to wait. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I have to spoil the ending. It's the only way to preach the story. I have to spoil the ending. When you fast forward into chapter 4, we're given the reason. Jonah doesn't run out of fear. He's not running 180 degrees in the opposite direction because he's afraid of what will happen to him in Nineveh. He doesn't run out of fear. He runs out of hate. He hates these dirty pagans. He despises these dirty pagans, and he runs because he knows God is going to show them compassion. And he can't stand the thought of that. To Jonah, the Ninevites are those people. You know what I mean by that? To Jonah, the Ninevites are outsiders. The Ninevites were a different race, a different religion. They had a different worldview. They were a different nation. And Jonah did not want those people to be recipients of God's compassion. Religious people will have no problem bringing the message of God's grace to those who are like them. Jonah did that in 2 Kings 14. Religious people have no problem bringing the message of God's grace to those of the same race, same political party, same socioeconomic class. But religious people like Jonah will avoid those people. They'll avoid those of another race. They'll avoid those in a different political party. They'll avoid those in a different socioeconomic class. Jonah has a faulty view of God. He wants to control him. He does not like the idea that God is going to show compassion on a category of people that exist inside Jonah's head called those people. One pastor tells a story about a well-groomed man in his church tapping him on the shoulder one Sunday morning to inform him that they had a first-time visitor among them that morning. This, this well-groomed man came to his pastor. He said, do you see that man? Pointing to this visitor. Can you believe he would come into the house of God with those dirty jeans and that ratty T-shirt? When he passed me in the hallway, he reeked of nicotine Pastor, what are you going to do about that man? He's a distraction to my worship. This pastor writes, thankfully, after the service, another church member got to our visitor before this man could. The church member himself, a recovering alcoholic, warmly welcomed the visitor, got his name and asked him about his story. The visitor's name was George. He was recovering from a heroin addiction and felt like being part of a church could help him with that. What do you call a nicotine addiction for a man who is recovering from heroin? You call it progress. You call it an upgrade. This well-groomed church guy had a category for people in his head labeled those people. just like Jonah. 
religious people will avoid, want separation from, or nothing to do with those people. Second, what religious people are indifferent to. Jonah's attitude toward those of different nations, races, worldviews is just beginning to get exposed. It's actually intensified in the story. The text says he contracted a ship to set sail in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Now, these sailors are also not Jewish. Most likely, they're Phoenician. They are clearly polytheistic. They are a different race than Jonah as well. So, think about this. Jonah is running from the Ninevites, a different race, nation, worldview. He's running from them, but he's running to a group of people who are also a different nation, race, worldview, and he's got no problem running towards them. What's the deal? Well, as is the case with many religious people, Jonah is quite willing to associate with them while it benefits him. Once they become useless to him, however, he will discard them. So Jonah's in the ship with the Phoenician sailors. God sends a storm on the sea. It was nasty. The professional sailors are crying out to their respective gods to save them. Where's Jonah in this crisis? Well, he went below deck. While they are useful to him, he doesn't want to have to associate with them any more than is necessary. These sailors, like the Ninevites, are to Jonah, those people. The captain goes below deck. He finds Jonah frantically asking him, how can you sleep? Speech in biblical narrative is always important to pay close attention to. It often carries the weight of the meaning of a particular story. This question is revealing even more about Jonah's attitude towards those of a different nation, race, religion, and worldview. Not only does Jonah not care about the spiritual well-being of the Ninevites, he's showing an incredibly high level of indifference towards the physical and emotional well-being of the sailors. He is completely indifferent to their plight. He's quite content to take the sailors down with him. This is notoriously true of religious people. Religious people are indifferent to the plight faced by those people. Religious people are often indifferent to the physical and emotional well-being of other nations, races, political parties, sexual orientations, worldviews. And a good way to test this in ourselves is to see how we react when those who believe and behave differently than we do face a difficult plight. When the people at the Pulse Gay nightclub in Orlando got shot up and 49 people lost their lives and another 53 were wounded, what was your heart's default response to that? Did it break with compassion? Or was there a part of you that said they got what they deserved? How we react to something like that says a lot about us. Julian was an emperor in Rome during the fourth century AD. 
In a letter he wrote to another Roman religious leader, Julian complained that Christianity had gotten out of hand in Rome in part because Christians were doing a better job taking care of Rome's afflicted than Rome was. In his letter to this Roman religious leader, he said, In every city establish frequent hostels in order that strangers may profit by our benevolence. For it is disgraceful when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, that's how an emperor of Rome would refer to Christians, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. <laughs> He's irritated that Christians are doing a better job taking care of the physical needs of the Romans than the Romans are. Stick that in your benevolence pipe and smoke it. The Christians in this polytheistic, mixed-race, licentious, sexual promiscuous Roman Empire are taking better care of those said Romans than the Romans are. Imagine that. Imagine Christians having a reputation of taking better care of the afflicted among us, regardless of race, political parties, socioeconomic status, or sexual orientation than any other governmental or nonprofit organization. The Bible does call us to this. Perhaps one of the most scandalous stories ever told in the Bible that illustrates this was told by Jesus himself in which he makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. This is one of the reasons almost a year ago I was thrilled to hear about the student union. The student union is going to be a space and an opportunity to show that we are interested in the well-being of people who believe and behave differently than we do. Third, how religious people are formed. Hope you're getting the picture here. Jonah is not recorded in the Bible, so we will emulate him and follow him. He's actually a pretty cold-hearted guy. The question that should reverberate in our heads as we look at his actions, how did he get this way? How does anybody get this way? In verse 8, the sailors asked Jonah a barrage of questions. Who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now, if you're Israel's pastor who's been sent on an evangelistic mission, evangelistic mission, what would be the first words out of your mouth to people who are far from God? Well, maybe something to do with God. Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. First words. Old Testament scholar Dan Timmer in his study on Jonah writes, he says, since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. Jonah's very proud of his country. He's very proud of his nationality, very proud to be a Jew. How much credit can he take for that? How did Jonah become a Hebrew? Not by his own doing, but by the sovereign grace of God. He's not a Jew because he made it happen. He's a Jew because God made it happen. He's taking way too much credit for something he had no power over. Look at the next part of this verse, verse 9. He says, and I worship the Lord. Yeah, exactly. Really? You want to run that by me one more time, Jonah? 
and I worship the Lord, man, you're in open rebellion against this God you say you worship. We're not supposed to see the discrepancy here. Jonah's taking too little credit for his sin that has caused the mess. Religious people are formed when they take too much credit for something they had no power over and too little credit for the sin they've contributed. Let me put it differently. Religious people are formed when they diminish their sin and underappreciate God's grace. This is what's happening with Jonah. Religious people are formed when they diminish their sin and underappreciate God's grace. When I diminish my own sin and underappreciate God's grace, I will be prone to looking down my nose at people I perceive to be morally inferior to me. When I diminish my sin and underappreciate God's grace, I will be prone to looking down my nose at people who believe and behave differently than I do. When I diminish my sin and underappreciate God's grace, do you know what happens? I create a category in my head called those people. And I'll come to a crossroads at that point. I'll either separate myself from them or destroy them. Jonah demonstrates this clearly. He separates himself from the sailors. And he would have gladly gone to Nineveh if he knew the Ninevites would have been destroyed. But because he knew God would have compassion on them, he separated himself from them. Religious people are formed when they diminish their sin and underappreciate God's grace. So fourth, how... Religious people can be transformed. How are religious people transformed? One of my prayers for Alliance Bible Church is that we are a place where people are given multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. It's one of my prayers that we saturate the people who come through the doors of this church in the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. Now, someone may ask a question, why are you so preoccupied with that? Why do you insist on that? Let me, let me show you why I'm going to be insistent about that. In Luke's gospel, chapter 24, we read this. Jesus said to them, his disciples, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Question. Given what Jesus says here in Luke 24, how would he have read Jonah? One reason I want us to have a culture where we're giving ourselves multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other is that I want us to learn the, to read the Bible the way Jesus read the Bible. The way he read it is the best way to read it. Jesus says the Old Testament is about him. That is also the answer to this question. How are religious people transformed? The answer is found in how Jesus would have read Jonah chapter one. 
So let me explain that. How would Jesus have read Jonah 1? Jesus is saying the Old Testament's about him. Prophets wrote about him. How's Jonah 1 about Jesus? How are religious people transformed? Years after Jonah, the call of God came to another prophet, Jesus Christ. The call was for Jesus to leave his homeland of heaven and go to Nineveh. Not Nineveh in Assyria, Nineveh as in the human race. Nineveh as in Ozaki County. Unlike Jonah, Jesus heeded the call of God and obeyed. And he went. He came. Jonah refused to go because he perceived the Ninevites to be morally inferior to himself and therefore not worthy of God's compassion. Of course, the book goes out of its way to try to convey that that's not the case. We in Nineveh, in Ozaki County, are genuinely morally inferior to Jesus Christ. But in spite of this, he still went out. He still came to us Ninevites to be an instrument of God's compassion. Jesus could have justifiably looked at us and said of us, we are to him those people. And what did Jesus do for those people? Like Jonah, it is our sin that has created the storm now crashing over the bow of our boats. It is our sin that has put our lives in jeopardy. It is our sin that should prompt God to throw us into the deep. But in heeding the call of God to go to Nineveh and Ozaki County, Jesus, even though morally superior, throws himself into the deep to save us who are to him those people. The only way religious people are transformed is by seeing that they themselves are Ninevites. To God, I am one of those people. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God did not respond to us the way Jonah did to the Ninevites. Instead, God, out of his infinite mercy and grace, sends Jesus as an instrument of compassion to be thrown into the deep for our salvation. I am a Ninevite. You are a Ninevite. To God, we could be called those people. We are more sinful, flawed, and messed up than we can possibly imagine. But in spite of this, God lavished his mercy and grace on us when Jesus hurled himself into the deep for our salvation. This is how religious people are transformed. Religious people are transformed when they take a glaring look at the vileness of their sin and an equally scrutinizing look at the grace of God lavished on us in Jesus Christ. 
Religious people are transformed when God's spirit works in our hearts as we're given multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. When God's spirit works in and through the gospel, religious people are transformed into people who, like Jesus, are willing to answer the call of God to go invest in the spiritual, physical, emotional well-being of those who believe and behave differently than we do. This is the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, grant us the ability to see our sinfulness through your holy eyes. Like Jonah, we are easily prone to diminish our sinfulness and underappreciate your grace. So I pray for a loving confrontation with the gospel. Humble us with these truths this morning so that your church can be an extension of your mercy and grace reaching out to a world that desperately needs your son, Jesus. We pray these things not because we're looking for something to do. We pray these things because they are rooted in who you are and what you're seeking to accomplish in the world today. So we ask it to the glory, beauty, and majesty of Jesus' name. Amen. As the elements are being passed out, we encourage you to spend this time reflecting on this. Do you have a category in your head called those people? We create that. We create that. They don't. We create that when we diminish our sin and underappreciate God's grace. The table is the perfect opportunity to recalibrate our view of our own sin and God's love and grace. It's the perfect opportunity to recalibrate this, to get this in line with how Scripture portrays it. So reflect on that. Do some introspection. Confess stuff to God. This is the time for that. And then walk away knowing you've been forgiven. Because Jesus went to the cross for you. God, I pray that through your word and your spirit, the cross of your son would never become rote or old hat. We would always be able to come to it, refreshed by it, convicted by it, encouraged by it. Because there we see the intersection of your justice against our sin and your incredible love for us through the substitutionary sacrifice of your son. We declare your goodness and your greatness as we partake of this table. We pray, Lord, that that would transform the way we live in this world as your ambassadors. We pray it to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways.
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God's people said, Amen.